Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you here this morning. My name is Tim Park. I serve as our lead pastor. If this is your first time visiting our church, we're so thankful that you're here. And we know there are many who are tuning in online as well. If you're joining us from home, we, we're so thankful that you're worshiping with us. And it's days like today where uh, we really appreciate our tech crew and our live stream team as many people are worshiping uh, mobily. And so I can't thank our team enough. You don't see them, but I see them up there in the booth. And uh, they're the most important people right now. And so can we hear it for our tech team? You may know that our church is part of the EFCA. That's the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's a wonderful association of churches like-minded churches. Reach Global Crisis Response is a ministry within the EFCA. And right now, Reach Global Crisis Response, they are mobilizing resources to help those who have been devastated by the wildfires in Hawaii and on the island of Maui. We shared with you last week that we here at E-Free Church, we have the distinct opportunity to partner with Reach Global as Reach Global partners with the Hawaii District of the EFCA. And they're going to mobilize resources so that the church can make an impact for many, many years to come in Hawaii. And so if you would like to give to this cause, and many of you have already done that, but if you'd like to give, you can drop off a donation in the offering box. On the envelope, you can just simply write Hawaii, and we'll make sure that it gets to Reach Global. You can also give online, and when you give online, you can go to our giving page, go to Give to Missions, and then in the comments section, just simply put Hawaii, and we'll make sure that those gifts go to Reach Global. Well, today, we are concluding our series in the book of Philippians. And we've been in this series for the last two months. And the great thing about this book is, whether you were living in the first century or you're living in the 21st century, this letter speaks to its recipients in a loud and clear way. And today, as we close out our series, I've titled The Final Message this way, our riches in Christ. That is the message to the closing, or that's the title to the closing message in our series, our riches in Christ, and we'll be in chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. Now, when you receive a birthday gift, or maybe someone has treated you to a special meal, or if someone has just some, done something kind for you. Oftentimes, many of you like to respond with a thank you card, a thank you note. And some of you are gifted in writing cards. I know that. Some of you have this special gift from God that you write cards in a very gifted manner. My wife, Joanne, she's gifted in, in writing greeting cards. And uh, she's so gifted that sometimes when she sends a thank you card to someone, that person will thank her for the thank you card. And then she'll thank the person for thanking her for thanking her. 
And so she's gifted in that way. Right? Have you ever uh, been in a text dialogue with someone or an email dialogue, and you're not quite sure who's supposed to end the dialogue, right? It's like, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And just keep going on and on and on. Well, the letter that we've been looking at for the last two months is basically one of the world's best thank you cards. It's been so good that we have been studying it today in the 21st century. The book of Philippians, this thank you note from Paul to the Philippians, it has made such a lasting impact that it is one of the most studied books in churches all over the world. And as we've seen throughout the series, Paul and the Philippians, they shared this deep, intimate bond. They were partners in the gospel, but they were also friends. They prayed for one another. They hurt when others hurt. They celebrated when the other celebrated. And so Paul and the Philippians, they shared this oneness. And that's why Paul, last week we learned, he urged them to live in harmony. And remember, he, he called out two specific members of the church by name. And he did so because it hurt him to know that they were hurting. And so he wanted the church to live as gospel citizens. You know, all too often, all too often Christians think, hey, uh, I'm good with God, and that's all that matters. But sometimes they forget that our horizontal relationships, whether they know it or not, impacts our relationship with God, our vertical relationship. You see, we cannot be at peace with God and simultaneously be at war with other Christians. And that's why Paul urged the Philippian congregation to live in harmony with one another. And now when we come to chapter 4 in the final sections, Paul is going to circle back to the topic, the main topic of why he actually wrote this letter. He's going to thank the Philippians for their financial gift. So he's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about this sensitive matter of money. So let's pick it up in chapter 4. We'll start in verse 10. I'll read to you verses 10 through 13. Paul writes this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And verse 13 says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, when it comes to the subject of money, there are two extreme views. And in particular, when it comes to uh, the view of money, You've got two polar opposite views. On the one end of the spectrum, on this extreme, you have those who think that wealth or the accumulation of wealth is one of the best things you can do in life. It's one of the, the most important pursuits is to be financially secure, and not only that, but to gain as much as you can. So that's one extreme, way over here. 
On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have those who think, well, money is bad. Poverty equals purity. And so you have this extreme that says, we ought to do everything to divest ourselves of all riches. So on this end, you've got money is the most important thing. Accumulate as much as you can. Way over here, poverty equals purity. Most of us, in fact, all of us, I imagine fall somewhere between these two polar extremes. I imagine most of us are probably right around here. Maybe some might be slightly this way, some might be slightly that way. Well, today we're going to look at Paul's perspective when it comes to the subject of finances. And Paul was basically saying that his life was not necessarily advanced by either poverty or wealth. He says, whether hungry or well-fed, okay, whether I was suffering or living in the lap of luxury, the quality of my life is not dictated by my bank account. That's what Paul is basically saying. I want to look at verse 13 again. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, here's an important question for you to consider. I just read to you this verse in the New International Version, the NIV. And the question I have for you is this. What is the this that Paul is referring to? He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Some of your Bibles, if you read it, your translation says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And so the editors of the various translations made a decision. Some said, I can do all this. Others, I can do all things. Now, the literal word, the actual word in Greek is translated into English as things. And that's why some editors say, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But here's the challenge. When you translate one language to another language, sometimes a word-for-word -word translation can result in some confusion. Okay? And so that's why I appreciate in this particular case, the New International Version, the NIV, has taken us one step and said, I can do all this so that it's not confusing. You see, if I read, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength, naturally, I'll ask myself, oh, what is the this? And that'll give me the opportunity to look at the verses preceding it to see the immediate context. Because sometimes when we read the words, I can do all things, we don't think about, oh, what are those things? We usually think, I can do all things. And so it can get a little bit confusing. So over the years, I've heard some students use this verse. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Students have used this verse to motivate themselves to get straight A's. I can do all things. Actually, I should say their parents use this verse <laughs> to help their kids be motivated. You can do all things. You can get straight A's. Right here, Philippians 4.13. I've heard some people use this verse to motivate themselves to bench press. 
a certain amount of weight. I can do all things. I can best press this heavy weight. I can do all this. And so they're in the gym with the shirt. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And they, they mean well. Now, it's certainly true that God gives us the strength we need to face every day. But if we understand that Paul is talking about contentment, and in particular, financial contentment, then we will understand the context. He says, I can do all this, whether hungry or whether well-fed, whether I'm suffering or whether I am just on top of the world, I can do all this. Here's my modern-day paraphrase of what Paul's saying. He's saying, I can live in any financial circumstance with the power of Christ because I've already experienced every financial circumstance. You see, Paul knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to dine in the finest restaurants in town. In that sense, his financial status did not contribute to his freedom to know Jesus and to make him known. You see, Paul was ready to serve the Lord no matter his circumstances. Yes, he was thankful for the Philippians' gift. I mean, after all, this is why he wrote the letter. But at the same time, did you know that Paul didn't want to be a burden to others? And that's why throughout the course of Paul's ministry here and there, Paul worked as a tent maker. Now, the term tent maker means that he literally made tents. Okay? He didn't make tents for casual camping. Okay? Back in the first century, some people, they actually lived in tents. Those were their dwelling places. And so this was an important trade. And so from time to time, when support for Paul's ministry wasn't quite at the point where it could you know, pay all the bills, put food on the table, Paul developed the trade of tent making. And so he would supplement his ministry by working as a tent maker. So Paul was bivocational. He served the Lord as a missionary. He served the Lord as a church planter. And he also made tents. Before our family arrived here at our church in the fall of 2011, which is now nearly 12 years ago, Joanne and I were part of a church plant back in the year 2000. Joanne and I set out and we planted a church in the Orange County area. And that church plant for over 10 years was a special part of our lives. We have incredible memories of that season, being part of this young startup church. Our son Andrew was born two weeks after the launch of that church plant. Now, who in their right mind would plant a church when his wife is pregnant? Who? Who would do that? But, but it was symbolic in a sense because here was Joanne pregnant with our first child, and all the while we are getting ready to birth a church. And that was in the year 2000 where we birthed and launched that church plant in Orange County. I want to take a few minutes, if you don't mind, to share with you 
just how perfect God's timing is and just how perfect God's plan is and just how faithful God's provisions are. Joanne and I got married on November 7th in 1998. That means this November we'll celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. Thank you. When we got married, our first home was a condo that we rented right here in Diamond Bar, inside the Diamond Bar Tennis Club, right across from the Diamond Bar Golf Course. We called that home for a year and a half. So as newlyweds, we rented this condo. About a year into our marriage, God started placing on our hearts the desire to plant a church in Orange County, kind of near where I grew up. At that time, when God placed this on our hearts, I was pastoring at a church in El Monte. And as God placed this on our hearts, we soon recognized what that would mean is we'd be leaving a stable, thriving church to plant and we weren't being sent out by a supporting church. This would just be purely independent on our own. And I can still remember lying awake, talking with Joanne in the darkness of our room, on our bed, in our Diamond Bar condo in the fall of 1999. And as we were saying to each other, if this is where God wants us to go, then we're going to have to step out in faith and trust fully in his provisions. And guess what? God provided. And he provided in some of the most creative ways possible. In the early stages of our church plant, I needed to find a job. Again, because we had no supporting church. We we're just gathering the core group of people. There's no other income. So I had to look for a job. But it had to be a very specific type of job. It had to be full-time in order to support a family. And it had to be temporary, like seasonal, like no more than a year. I mean, what kind of jobs are there? Full-time, seasonal jobs that I can just kind of lay aside when I need to. So there we were in our Diamond Bar condo. And I see this ad. Okay, keep in mind, it's the year 2000. I see an ad. The government is looking for workers to work in the U.S. Census Bureau. Because every 10 years, we take a, ten, a census. So I see this ad, and I said, honey, I'm going to apply for this job. They're looking for seasonal, full-time workers to work for the government. And so I went to the Diamond Bar Library. Not the nice one, okay? Back then, it was the old Diamond Bar Library. The old small one next to the fire station on Grand and Diamond Bar Boulevard. So I go there, I turn in my application, and as part of the application, we're all required to take an exam. Because they want to make sure that you're competent, right? And so I take my exam, and they grade the exams right there on the spot. And then they call your name, and you come up and get your exam. And right there on the spot, they hired me. So I became a manager at the La Mirada U.S. Census Bureau. And for that season of life, as we were planting a church, 
God provided a job where I worked 40 hours a week as a manager, a field manager, overseeing all these census workers. Back then, they didn't really know much about the internet, and so all the workers went door to door taking surveys. And so I would manage these people from the office and say, hey, you go there, you go there, you go there, and I'll just wait here, and you just come back and report to me. <laughs> but it was just an incredible opportunity that God opened up for me to work full-time for that season of life. Eventually, we moved down to Tustin Ranch, where our church was planted. By that time, the 2000 census had wrapped up. And so I was no longer working full-time. God was uh, establishing the church. So then it was time for me to try to find a part-time job. Okay, because the church wasn't quite ready to support his pastor full-time. And so I needed to find a part-time job to supplement uh, the income. And sure enough, I came across an ad. The city of Anaheim, the largest city in Orange County, was looking to hire just a handful of assistants to serve as assistants to each of the council members. You see, because it's such a large city and they have so many people, over 350,000 residents, they needed assistance to help each council member. So I went and I sat down and I still remember I interviewed who, who, with who would be my eventual council member, the late, great Mr. Frank Feldhaus. He was nicknamed Mr. Anaheim. So I sat in his office and he interviewed me. And afterwards, he said, okay, Tim, welcome to the team. And so he hired me on, and I served as his direct assistant, and I would often accompany Mr. Feldhaus to events or meetings, and sometimes I would go in his stead, right? Because there are so many demands, they can't be at every place at the same time. So he would just often send me. And it was just an incredible experience working for local city government. Uh, I got to experience the entire spectrum. And sometimes they were difficult meetings, sometimes sad meetings. I remember going to businesses along a very busy street because of eminent domain. And their business was about to be taken from them by the city so that they can expand the roads. And so it was my job to console them. And so I would meet with people, they'd be in tears trying to convince me to convince my council member not to take their business. But you know, it was just an incredible experience that God provided for me to work part-time for the city of Anaheim. So many fond memories. I could be here forever to talk about story after story, but I wanted to just share with you one cool story. Uh, I didn't know this until after I started working there, but one of the perks that the assistant received was Every council member for the city of Anaheim got a private suite at Angel Stadium and Honda Center, which was called the Pond back then. And so every council member got a suite. And so every so often, Mr. Feldhaus would say, hey, Tim, I can't make it to the game tonight. And I wouldn't even let him finish the statement. I'll go for you, okay? I'll go. And so sometimes we would enjoy Angel's games from his suite right next to the press box. I mean, you're looking at the biggest Angels fan in the history of Angels baseball right here. I mean, God is so creative 
right? He, in that way. And then Honda Center, or the pond at that time, it hosted some of the, the best concerts. And, and you're looking at uh, U2's biggest fan of all time, right? And, and many of you know that. And, and so in the year 2001, U2 was going to play three consecutive nights at the pond. And I said, Mr. Feldhouse, I said, Frank, uh, are you going to go to the uh, concert tonight? He goes, no, no, you just take these four tickets. And so I got to see them, U2, my favorite band, opening night at the pond in the luxury suite with three other very happy people. <laughs> God's plans are always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. Even if we don't, in the moment, know what's going to happen, his timing, his plan, and his provision, they're all more than perfect. They're beyond what you and I could ever even dream of. God is good. He is so, so good. And we can trust in his provision, no matter our circumstances. And that is why when we read Philippians 4.13, we can confidently say, I can do all this. No matter our financial situation, no matter whether you have a job right now or you just lost a job, no matter if you need another job, if you need more, if you need something different, no matter our circumstances, we can do all this through Christ who gives us strength. Let's continue on. Verse 14. I'll read through verse 20. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And everybody said, Amen. Paul calls the Philippians' gift a fragrant offering. He calls it an acceptable sacrifice. And here's what he means. Any financial gift that we give, any gift that we give to our church, to a missionary, to a cause, like in Hawaii, every gift that we give, every donation is first and foremost an offering to God. First and foremost, before it ever reaches anybody else, it is an offering to God. And guess what? God knows our hearts. And God can detect the aroma of that gift. And he can tell whether it is pleasing to the nose 
or if it doesn't smell quite right. Sometimes people can use their money for leverage. I'm thankful here, here at our church, we have such faithful givers, and I don't see that here at all. But sometimes in organizations, in churches, sometimes people use their money as leverage, thinking, I'm going to give this big gift, which means I'll get a bigger piece of that pie called church, and I'll have more influence, more say. And oftentimes that ends up in churches splitting, right? Because churches split over money all too often. If you and I don't have a biblical understanding, a biblical foundation of money, then here's what will happen. We'll view ourselves as owners of that money rather than stewards. And that's why we ought to just loosen our grip on money. Some are gifted. Some have the gift of giving, and they're just, they're, their hands are just wide open all the time. And then the rest of us, we have to pray and ask God to help us loosen our grip on money. In the Bible, there, there was a man who did just that. He loosened his grip when Jesus walked into his life. His name was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, but not only a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. And Zacchaeus was hired by a government, the oppressive government, to cheat money out of his own people, his own community. So this oppressive government, who, by the way, the government despised the tax collectors they hired. They were just using them. And so they hired these tax collectors who would then in turn extort money from their own community and then give it to the government, but then they could keep a portion of the overpayment. So they would assess a person's tax responsibility and say, you owe more. And they would keep some, give the rest to the government. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he got rich off of other people's money until Jesus walked into his life. One day Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming to town. Now Zacchaeus was curious. He had heard about all the miracles that Jesus performed. So he wanted to see Jesus. But there was one problem, right? Some of you know Zacchaeus, he was small in stature. So in order for him to see Jesus, he climbed up a tree so that he could see him. And as Jesus walked by, Jesus looked up and says, Zacchaeus, come down. Come on down here. Get out of that tree. I'm going to go to your house. And so Jesus walked into Zacchaeus' house, and he walked into his life, and Zacchaeus' life would never be the same again. God transformed Zacchaeus' life, and he opened up his hand, and he loosened Zacchaeus' grip on all the money that he had. Now, I want you to picture this. Let's say that you're in your home right now, and Zacchaeus is a 21st century tax collector. And let's say he comes to your house, and he knocks on your door. You go to your front door, you look through the peephole, or you look through the uh, Ring app, and you go, oh, no, it's that guy again. So you reluctantly open the door, 
And instead of Zacchaeus demanding more money, this time he hands you a handful of cash. What's this? And Zacchaeus explains, here's the money that I wrongfully took from you. I'm so deeply sorry. Why are you returning this? I met Jesus, and he changed my life, and my life can never be the same. So then you count the money. In the previous occurrence, Zacchaeus stole $1,000 from you. So you expect to receive $1,000 back. Actually, you might expect to receive $1,200 back because in the Old Testament times, if you cheated someone out of money, you had to pay them back that amount plus one-fifth more. So you would think, okay, maybe $1,200. But you count $4,000. Zacchaeus didn't stop at one-fifth. He paid back four times what he stole. Not only that, he said, Jesus, I promise to give 50% of all I have to the poor. Now, rather than getting caught up in the percentages, here's the thing we need to know about Zacchaeus and his loose grip. The most important detail is this. No matter how much Zacchaeus gave back to the people he cheated, no matter how much he gave to the poor, he could never match what God had given to him, eternal life. And that's why there was a special bond between Paul and the Philippians. You see, when the Philippians sent this big gift to Paul, they knew no matter how much this gift was. And it was a small church. Remember we said Philippi was a small church. But they gave generously. But they said no matter how much we give, it could never match what God did for us through the missionary Paul. And that brings us now to the final three verses in this letter. Verse 21. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, do you remember we said that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippian church in what environment? He was where? He was in Rome in prison. He was under house arrest. That means 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he was chained to palace guards, prison guards. And here he says, those around me send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. He's referring to the palace guards who were chained to Paul. Did you get that? Yes, he was chained to them, but they were chained to him just as much. And they heard Paul every time he prayed. They saw Paul every time he picked up a pen to write a letter. They were chained to Paul, and because they were chained to him, they heard the gospel, and they came to faith. He had a captive audience. And so Paul says, those in Caesar's household, oh, you know these palace guards who were chained to me? They also say hi. 
because they are your brothers and sisters. Can we pause? I just want to pray. I want to pray for safety on the roads, okay? Father, we, uh, we pray right now for anybody on the roads that you keep them safe. We pray for the first responders as they have a busy day ahead. Father, would you give them alertness, uh, skill, and compassion. We pray all those who are affected by the severe weather. Father, would you just grant uh, safety and, uh, Father, protect all those who will be on the road. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul thought he was going to Rome to preach the gospel as a preacher. The reality is he did his best work as a prisoner. What happened to Paul advanced the gospel. That's what he said. As followers of Jesus Christ, you and I know this. There are no coincidences. And yes, there are even no accidental circumstances. We know that God is in complete control. Now, this much I confess to you. I just don't know how he's working in some ways. But if we can take comfort in knowing that he is working, no matter the circumstance, then we can have confidence that he is working all things for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Church, your final assignment in this series is this. For those of you visiting for the first time, every week I've been giving you another assignment each week, and I've been encouraged. Some of you come up to me on Sundays and share with me about how your assignments have been going. This morning between services, I was having another conversation with another church member. In fact, a couple, they said, Pastor Tim, everything begins in the mind. And I'm like, that's right. You remember, God bless you. And a few weeks before that, somebody texted me and texted me that Jesus, Jesus is the reason why we can wake up and I want to know him more and I want to make him know more. And it's just been wonderful. And so my last assignment for you this week is this. If you could do this, wake up tomorrow morning and, and ask God when you get out of bed, God, what circumstance will you bring to me today? And how can I demonstrate in that moment that I am a gospel citizen? What circumstance will you bring my way today? Will you bring to me today? And how can I demonstrate in that moment, that I am a gospel citizen. And with that, we bring Philippians to a close. We invite you back here next week. We're starting an eight-week series called In Awe, exploring God's titles 
in the Psalms. Let's pray together. Father, what circumstance will you bring our way, all of our ways, tomorrow morning, even this afternoon? And how can I demonstrate, and how can we demonstrate that we are gospel citizens? Father, because we know that there are no coincidences, there are no accidental circumstances, they are all appointments. So give us the courage, give us the motivation, give us the desire to live as gospel citizens. Thank you for Philippians. Thank you for Jesus. We love him. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.